Hello, cave dwellers. I'm pleased to say that Retro Tea Breaks returns, the series in which we get to meet and chat to the pioneers of the video game industry. Well known, unknown, big and small. We like to hear all of their insights to understand what went into the creation of our favorite games. Joining us today is a man who worked on a potential Sonic beta on the Amiga, was involved in the era of the interactive movie, can tell us about an as yet unreleased Dreamcast game and a whole lot more. Welcome to the show, Glenn Broadway. Oh, thanks, Neil. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks for joining us. We first got chatting when you visited the cave. Uh, as a punter, you came to play on all the systems uh, and see the cave. Um, a couple of weekends back, it was now. And you presented from your pocket an unfinished Amiga game on a floppy disk, which we uh, oh, got yeah. to see running. It's fantastic to see that. And we will come on to that game. But before we do, can you take us all the way back to the beginning of your interest in computers? Where did it start for you? before you found your way into the industry? Oh, okay. So, um, well, I was born in uh, 1971. So uh, the first time I ever saw a computer was um, my dad brought one back from his office. It was a Commodore. Yeah, it was a Commodore PET. It didn't have a chiclet keyboard. So I'm guessing it was kind of a little bit later. Mm -hmm. um, I remember playing a game on that. That was the first computer game I ever played. You had to... Um, you had to dash to the four corners of the screen whilst the rest of the screen filled up with zeros. And if you made it to the four corners and ate the Xs, you won. And, uh, <laughs> sure, was it wasn't first... a spreadsheet. <laughs> well, yeah, it sounds like it. But, uh, yeah, I'd like to find that game. Um, but the first computer I owned was I was very lucky. My dad bought me a, a BBC Model B. Um, it had a Watford Electronics ROM board inside it um, and a few nice ROMs came from the previous owner. Um, yeah, and I guess that would have been about 83, maybe 82. No, 83, I think. Um, and yeah, I absolutely love that BBC. That was my mm -hmm. first computer. Yeah. What sort of things did you do on that? Because the BBC Micro, of course, was the, the chosen machine for our schools in the UK and gained a reputation for having a nice basic programming language. So were you into the programming? So, yes. Um, not as much as I, I probably could have been. I had other things going on. <laughs> Bizarrely, I was into breakdancing at the time. So, <laughs> yeah, I had plenty of things I was doing. But, um, yeah, I do remember uh, learning a bit of BBC Basic. Um, in fact, the f I thought about this the other day, and the first program I ever wrote was a, a map of the world. Um, I, I wrote – I basically drew lines. BBC Basic has line drawing functionality, doesn't it? So I, mm -hmm. I drew a map of the world on a piece of graph paper – worked out the coordinates of everything, plotted it on the screen and wrote a program. And then pretty sure I found a flood fill program in a in BBC Micro user magazine or something like that and ran it to fill the, the inside of the, the map in. And I remember taking it to school. So we had a once a week kind of computer club in the library. And uh, yeah, the teacher didn't believe me that I'd, that I'd, I'd plotted this map. So I, the next week I took in my graph paper and, uh, yeah, and I, and that's the way it went really at schools, wasn't it? In the in the early eighties, often the students were were doing more with their computers than the teachers were. So, yeah, that was that was kind of how I really started using it. Yeah, we do hear stories sometimes of 
kids who were very lucky and had a teacher who was really into it and bought their own machines in. But more often than not, it was the maths teacher was just given the job of running the computer club, whether they knew about it or not. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when you did- I, I did. Oh, I was going to say, I did play quite a few games on, on that BBC Micro as well. So absolutely love that. Um, I, I, I remember that was, that was, that was when I realized that the sort of video games I like playing were were not necessarily the ones that were most impressive graphically, but were kind of unique in terms of gameplay. So I loved games like uh, uh, Sentinel. I think it was Jeff Crammond. Mm-hmm. Um, incredible game and just completely unlike anything I'd ever seen. And of course, the classics, Elite, um, Revs, that kind of thing. But um, yeah, uh, yeah, that was... I think Sentinel was probably the pinnacle of my BBC micro gaming. Yeah, sure. And before you got into the industry, um, well, when you got into the industry, it was coming into the 16-bit era. So yeah. had you moved to a 16-bit computer at home as well before then? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I had my BBC micro that I played a couple of games on. I had my little desktop video games, Astro Blaster and and what was the oh, other the, one? The uh, tabletop games, yeah. Astro Wars, Astro yeah. Wars, yeah. And I got to see those when I came up to the cave, which was amazing. But um, <laughs> that kind of, I got really into games. So I bought an Atari ST. Um, me and my brother saved up and, and bought one. Um, we chose the ST over the Amiga. I think I, th- I think the Amiga was a little later, wasn't it, to market in the UK? The affordable one, the Amiga 500 was later. Yeah. The one so that was, was a factor. quite expensive, yeah. Um, that was a factor. But also I was a, a musician by this point. I was playing keyboards and the MIDI ports were attractive. So that's why I ended up with an Atari ST. Yeah. Okay, so you were, you were using it to make music. A, l- that, a little bit, yeah. Yeah. So tell us then, how did you find your way? How did you get your foot in the door to your first well, industry job? Yeah, so... Um, that Atari ST, I, I completely ceased doing any sort of programming at that point, sadly, um, mm-hmm. because of the graphics ability. Now, I'd always wanted to be an artist when I was young. My dream from the age of about nine or 10 was to be an illustrator. Um, in fact, I found just the other day uh, this picture of the Incredible Hulk <laughs> that I drew I think I was six when I drew this, so um, oh, wow. I That's just loved. Yeah, it was pretty very good. advanced yeah. for a six-year-old. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I, amazed the colours are right actually because I am colourblind. But um, uh, yeah, so um, I always wanted to be an artist. Got my Atari ST, found a copy of uh, Art Director, and started drawing and um, illustrating and, and doing a little bit of animation in that. So um, that was. That kind of saw me through my college years. Um, played lots of uh, Xenon and Speedball 2 and uh, uh, just Oids, actually. Oids was my favourite Atari Classic. ST game, yeah. Yeah. Uh, bizarrely, yeah. Um, and then as I was kind of coming to the end of college, I was in a band, playing in a band, and, uh, yeah, I I, I went with to collect my uh, bandmate from, from his job placement that he was at, and it happened to be at a what I, I didn't know at the time, but it happened to be at a video game studio in, in my local town. It was called Images. It was run by a guy called Carl Jeffrey, who had recently completed R-Type, I think, on maybe Spectrum, maybe Commodore 64, I'm not sure. Um, and he set up a little studio. It was very, um, it was kind of ad hoc. All the, all the people took their own computers in. Um, it was upstairs in his dad's shop in some, some office space that was up there. 
But I went in and, and was like, what's going on here then? You know, and I was looking around. There was a guy over there working on G-Lock, a conversion of G-Lock on the Amiga. Over here was, uh, well, a guy actually you've spoken to in the past called um, Steve Bedser. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. You, you did a chat with him about Silicon Graphics Machines. And he was working on Shadow Dancer on the Mega Drive. And I was looking at what they were doing, and they were all using D-Paint on Amigas. And I said, oh, I do this at home on my Atari ST. And uh, I think the next time I went in to, to get Jim, I, I took a disc in, and they, sh and they had a look at some of my animations. And before I knew it, Carl had kind of offered me a, a job working on a game that they were developing called Monkey Business, which was uh, an Amiga game being developed by a programmer out of the office. And I think they'd lost an artist or something. So that was my first ever chance to, um, to make graphics for a, for a video game. Yeah, so this is the first time you'd set foot into a video game developer's office. Um, yeah. Is it as you would expect a video game developer's <laughs> office to be? Because it sounds pretty casual in there. It was quite casual, but yeah. it was exactly as you'd expect. In fact, imagine, I mean, you've probably seen Bandersnatch, the, uh, the Black Mirror episode. It was it was almost exactly like that, but just slightly less uh, in terms of uh, professionalism. No one wore a suit or anything, but in terms of what the desks looked like, it was exactly like that. And it was it was people just um, pioneering things, finding things out, learning how to do things, building their own dev kits so that they could develop Mega Drive games without having to constantly reboot the console and things. And it was incredible, uh, incredible place to be. And I was there for a couple of years. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it was it was good. So, were you offered a job or were you offered a freelance contract? How did this? Yeah, work? I don't think I think very few people at that time were actually employed uh, by Carl. It was all uh, freelance work paid to milestones. Um, mm. Images later became the studio Climax, uh, which is one of the UK's largest um, developers up until very recently. Independent developers, um, still quite local to me. But at that time, no, it was freelance freelance work. You got paid when you when you delivered your work or hit your milestones. Um, okay. It was starting to become more of a, a sort of formal organization around about 1992, yeah. And did you work from home on your ST or did you walk into this room of Amigas and slam your yeah. Atari ST on yeah. the desk? <laughs> I, I worked from home mostly through the night because I'm, I'm kind of driven by uh, being close to a deadline. I don't like getting things done early. Sure. Um, so I'd work through the night and then the next day I'd maybe go in for half a day, you know, check, check things over, talk to the programmer. Um, but yeah, I'd often take my computer in and, and meet the other guys there. And they, to this day, you know, I was always, I'm still the guy that always used an Atari ST for graphics, which is just wrong, but that's the way it was. No, if so, it works, it works. Yeah, and it worked. Was this your, your main job then, or were you doing another job alongside uh, it, this at the time? Yeah, it was my only, it was my only job at the time. I'd... I had I left college and I had become an illustrator as as I'd always wanted and I got into illustrating and graphic design um, and I did that for a few years but the studio I was working at uh, that closed down so I was kind of between things at the time so it was really fortunate and uh, one of those sort of lucky sort of shifts you get in your life where you suddenly find yourself doing something new um, and uh, it was amazing I've got an incredible. Uh, wife who I'm, I'd met that year, year before. And, uh, she kind of supported me because I wasn't really earning, earning enough to support myself. Um, and yeah, we, um, 
yeah, it, it went from there. It was great. It was, yeah. it was really good. So you mentioned the first game that you worked on was a game called Monkey Business. And uh, we have got a, um, a capture, which you've provided to us of the, the, the I say game, it, it's an incomplete game, but we'll, we'll put some footage up on the screen for those watching the video to see it. Um, can you just describe to us a little bit about the game? What is yeah. it? Yeah, so when I when I joined, there was a platformer game in development by a by a kind of third party, as it were. It was called Monkey Business, and it was very old school platformer, sixteen bit platformer. In fact, I had a game on my Atari ST called Rolling Ronnie, I think it was, and it reminded me of that. The characters were kind of similar size, and they they kind of just it was very. Oh, you know, it was very sort of pedestrian. Jump, collect the star, jump down, you know. Um, and all the characters were very anthropomorphic. And I remember saying, this monkey just doesn't seem right. And I remember always suggesting we need to make him smaller, need to make him more lively. And that year, Sonic had, had come out, I think. I was just about to launch and we'd all seen it. And, uh, and I was clearly inspired by that. And as it happens, development of that monkey business game ceased, and I can't remember why. But Carl agreed that he would pick up development, get a new programmer, and we'd reversion the game into a game called Funky Monkey, which was entirely my kind of idea. Um, still a platformer, but just everything about it was going to be much more like full of life. We wanted a character that was kind of bouncy and would, um, you know, do do multiple actions and show a lot of expression on his face. Um, the big plan was to to add his mouth and eyes maybe after afterwards as a as a kind of overlaid sprite so that we could react to to things that were going on mm-hmm. and uh yeah, that was my first real proper animation that i'd done and um it was a bit of a baptism of fire, but it was it was good. I had those great guys steve Steve Bedzer and uh, Andy, another artist there who helped me out and um yeah, we got quite a few months into development. Again, unfortunately, that that game n- never got completed. In fact, we got as far as uh, just uh, a central character, some platforms, and most of his basic actions were complete. And it was quite Sonic-like, yeah. Yeah, and there's a proposal document on your blog. Is that a document that you had to write? Yes, I yeah. wrote that, yeah. <laughs> so you've yeah, that so, put that on your blog. And in it, yeah. you describe Funky, a monkey who wants to get out of the zoo to get out, to get down and party, which sounds very Stone Roses to me. Yeah. Uh, this is around, uh, yeah, 1991 is yes. around about when we're talking, when Sonic was released. So how much of an influence was Sonic or indeed any other games on trying to create this kind of cool yeah. party and monkey character? Um, it Sonic actually just very fleetingly i'd never really played on a mega drive um in fact at at images playing shadow dancer that was in development was really the first time i played on a mega drive um but certainly the 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 height of the character and the the size of his head really is what mm-hmm. influenced is what that influenced but um yeah i think um i i'd been a big fan of like bitmap brothers games on the atari st but i always felt they were a little bit robotic like yeah uh the characters all kind of moved almost like they were little marionettes Mm -hmm. in speedball amazing game amazing speed but you know the characters just kind of did did, did, did. yeah Uh, and i always felt like there was there was scope for a bit more you know just a bit more life Um, i always felt um, gods was a good example of that a very robotic movement 
yeah. the main character in Gods as well. Yeah. So really, it's not about sort of being influenced by another game, but just sort of trying to react to to what's available. Um, mm -hmm. It was a tall order, though, and I was I was really uh, setting myself up to fail. I think uh, I think the early demo does show that that it could have worked. Um, and when but, you compare it to how the game originally looked, it's a huge step up. The original game, the monkey looked like a guy wearing a monkey suit. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> he a did. a lot more character in Funky. And uh, yeah, in, in, in amongst the other various documents that you've scanned on your blog, uh, there's one that I'll pop up on the screen for viewers, which is labelled Frame Counts Sheet. Um, <laughs> right, yeah. What's that sheet all about for those of us well, who don't know how this all works? Yeah, I, I, think, I think what must have happened there was the... The programmer, the newer programmer, must have told me what the limitations were in terms of how many frames I was allowed. So I just tried to work out how many frames of animation I was going to use in each of the actions and which ones I could get away with fewer. And my my general idea was I didn't really know about this, and I'm sure there are uh, I'm sure there are guidelines for this kind of thing. But I was kind of nineteen twenty, so I th I thought, well, the animations that you see the most, walking left and right and turning. I better use the most frames for. And the ones that you see least often, I can probably get away with using fewer. So when he tumbles, I think I just use four frames and spinning around uh, the end of a branch. But um, I think the, the run animation is a standard eight frame. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's, uh, I, hadn't, I didn't even really remember I'd written that, that note. And when I found it in the folder, I thought, oh, I'm going to scan that. And yeah. And you also made some music for the game. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mentioned I was a musician. I'd, I'd been playing in this band, and I was just—I just wanted to. I—I I, I remember finding it difficult to explain in words how I wanted the game to feel, because um, everyone always referenced other games. They always say, "Oh, so you want to make a game that's like whatever?" Mm -hmm. And I didn't. I wanted to make a game that kind of had its own life. So I wrote a couple of little tunes. The first one I wrote was just a instrumental kind of bouncy track to get some idea for the the pace of the game and then the the guy i was in a band with said we should we should write a song <laughs> and i was like really he went yeah and mark is hilarious he just is you know he's so good with lyrics that he you know he started writing down lyrics and we we had this song that we used to play in a set so we reversioned it and uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a theme tune for Funky Monkey, and I suppose our plan was maybe to use that in some sort of promotional material. Because um, obviously, you wouldn't get that on a on a computer. I'd never done any sort of noise tracker or any sound tracker um, music on an Amiga or Atari ST. So yeah, I was a MIDI guy. So. Well, I think it's only fair that we all have a quick listen to that tune now. So let's play it. It's amazing that you've still got a copy of it, actually. 
Yeah, yeah. I in fact that copy is on was on audio cassette. I don't know if I've still got the cassette. We recorded everything via a sequencer on an Atari ST to a Tascam four eight eight multi track recorder, uh-huh. which would use a standard audio cassette and give you eight tracks somehow. I can't remember how it did it. It was incredible. It was, yeah, yeah. It was pretty what, good quality as well. I'm um, going to ask, what was the name of your band? Ah, uh, <laughs> the band was called All This and Heaven Too, which right. I believe is a Doris Day film. Okay. It's a bit like it's a bit like the band All About Eve. That's named after a film from the same era. It was called All This and Heaven Too, and it was ultimate late 80s kind of glam rock. It was Bon Jovi meets Duran Duran. But hey, I've got some more tracks. I'll send them to you so you can have a listen, <laughs> as long as you promise not to publish them. <laughs> and uh, when it comes to working at Images, was this a, a lucrative gig to have landed? Were there Ferraris lined up in the Images car park? Carl uh, Jeffrey famously had a Porsche 944. Okay. Uh, it was very nice, but that was the only the only car. It wasn't lucrative. Uh, my my I The deal with Funky Monkey was reasonable, um, but like I say, it kind of stalled, and I can't remember why. And uh, yeah, we parted. We parted ways around about nineteen ninety three. Yeah. Okay, ninety three. I guess we're kind of moving into a slightly different era of video games. There, where platform games are perhaps starting to get a little, not quite, but starting to get a bit long in the tooth as we move into the multimedia era. So, as good as Funky Monkey might have been, it might have got a bit late to the party yeah perhaps do you think that's fair i think that's fair to say i think it would have a mega drive version of it would have done well i think if that had come out in 93 early 94 worst case but yeah on uh, on atari st and amiga it was getting quite late in those days wasn't it so so what was your next move then from images in 93 what happened next? so um we saw an advert in the local press for a uh video game developer opening a studio in Southampton, not much more info than that. So I, I went up for the in- interview. Uh, so like I mentioned, um, really what I, what I wanted was a full-time job with a, with a wage so that we could, uh, you know, save up a deposit and buy a house. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, went, went to the interview and they didn't really reveal too much about what the, the game was they were going to be developing, but it was a weird little group of people from several different companies interviewing me in a hotel um, and I, I got the job based on the, the Funky Monkey demo, some other bitmap art I'd done, and and yeah, illustration work that I'd done before that as well that I took, um, and uh, got the job. It was incredibly low pay, but I was it was a wage, you know, rather than just you might get paid next month, you might not. It was a six thousand pound a year, I think, which is pretty low by nineteen ninety three standards, but. It, it soon ramped up when when things started going well. But we turned up at the office April the 1st, 1993. And, and we went in the office and it was completely empty. Uh, there were desks and chairs piled up in the corner. There were no computers. There was me, three other artists that had been hired, and Fergus, Fergus McNeil, who formerly, I didn't know this at the time, but formerly was Delta Four famous for making games like The Boggit and Border of the Rings on the Spectrum. 
Well, and uh, also a couple more games to his name, which some may know, which were The Town With No Name and Psycho Killer on on the CDTV. But um, I think the less we say about those ones, the better. (laughs) Well, yeah, infamous, infamous games, but there is a link, yes. So... It, it felt like it really was an April Fool, but actually there was also one piece of hardware in the room and it was a Laserdisc player and, and a copy of The Lawnmower Man, which actually was a big film at the time. Oh, huge. It was one of the first films with, with lots of computer graphics. And uh, yeah, it turned out that the job was to produce a game of The Lawnmower Man and Fergus had been employed. In fact, Fergus and John, the technical lead, worked for online entertainment who I think were formerly CRL who published those games, uh, town with no name and psycho killer. Um, and this was the time that CD-ROMs were starting to go into PCs, 150 K single speed CD-ROMs. They cost a lot of money. And Jane who ran SCI, who was the company I was working for sales curve interact. Um, she was pretty good at spotting what was coming next. And she thought there were going to be lots of people with lots of expensive hardware looking for things to show off to their friends on their PC. So she did a deal with Allied, I think, and, uh, you know, wanted to make a a Lawnmower Man game. Mm. And so that's what we did. So for those who aren't familiar with the film, it came out in 1992. It was a kind of a sci-fi horror film uh, in which the man who mows the lawn is given superhuman powers by Pierce Brosnan, is it, I think? Indeed. Pierce, yeah. Bros- Pierce Brosnan himself. So he, yeah. he is the, the lawnmower man of the title and he becomes very aggressive and wants to become a complete digital bean or a, a cyber god, if you like, yeah. through his new yeah. powers. Exactly. And and this all happened at the height of the first wave of virtual reality. So we had those virtuality yeah. machines landing in our arcades. We could put on headsets for the first time and actually go into uh, cyberspace of, of sorts. Yeah. And um, it was a big budget movie. It was really trying to tap into all of this uh, cyberspace virtual reality hype so it was huge it was a bit of a flop um certainly yeah. not a cult classic uh currently it has a score of 35 percent on rotten tomatoes so remembered for all the wrong reasons did you have to watch the movie obviously you had the laser disc player there so did you sit and watch through the whole movie so i didn't just have to watch the movie uh, a big part of our job that we were kind of taught on the first day or two by clem who ran online entertainment was we had to digitize large chunks of the movie and then clean up the footage. So this was done on an Amiga, I think. They had some kind of device that would that would bring the, the laser disc in. But the footage that you got was incredibly noisy. It would so even a, just a flat blue screen would have dancing pixels all over it. Mm-hmm. And uh, even when you reduce the palette down you'd still get artifacts. So you'd have to go in frame by frame and, and clean up all this footage. There weren't, there were, I don't know, half a dozen sequences in the game that were just pure grabbed footage. And the thing is, you've got to remember that really up to this point, there just wasn't, you didn't get video playing on computers. Um, you just didn't get it. I mean, we barely had digitized sound, let alone video. And, and so this was, this was a, the first stage. And then, so I had to, we had to know the film inside out from that, but also we kind of had to convert sequences from the film into gameplay. Now I use the word gameplay loosely. Uh, <laughs> what, we, what we're talking about here is, is kind of like, imagine Dragon's Lair, but Dragon's Lair that has been um, 
digitized and crunched down so that the video is, is I don't know how big it was, 150 by about 70 in eight colors, maybe six. Right. And it would stream off the CD-ROM and you'd hit a button to turn or hit a button to jump. And if you got it right, you'd do it. And if you got it wrong, you'd die. And the reason the video is so slow is because I believe that that John had written code that would effectively stream multiple video feeds off the CD-ROM and, and he, could, he could jump to whichever one. So uh, I think in Dragon's Lair, what it's doing is it's using the laser disc and it's jumping to the next sequence of the, of the, on the disc. That's right. It's jumping to yeah. a different chapter according to what you press. Yeah. And, and uh, so the quality is beautiful. Whereas what, what, what we did with Dune, I think the, the tool was called, D-U-N-E, is that you'd, you, you'd stream all the options, like, you know, the gameplay, survival and death, you'd stream them. And then, so the actual, um, the jumps were instant. So they were, it had one thing going for it. But uh, yeah, we, we tried to find ways to make a game out of this technology. And it was kind of not very successful. I but, guess with, with Dragon's Lair, the animation was created for the sole purpose of a game, an interactive game. So yeah. if you're ripping things out of a movie that was never intended for that in the first place, it would be difficult. Yeah. But presumably so, you were also generating new footage yeah. and new animation. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And that was, um, that was that's really interesting, actually, because when we got there, we had no idea how we were going to generate the new graphics. Uh, Fergus had tried a few techniques in Town With No Name, uh, rotoscoped animation, very low quality quality poly animation and i think he was basically going to do the same now lots of people put that game down but you've got to remember that i mean fergus is an incredible creative man he he from the age of about 15 was making video games and selling them and you know he he would try anything and he could achieve like he will he will he will try anything until it works and uh, he's less worried about the quality and just wants to get it out so he was like well we're going to get cinema 4D on amigas and we we'll make our graphics and Virgil a colleague of mine was like oh it's a bit rubbish i don't know if we can really do that i don't think it's going to cut the mustard against uh, what they produced for the film which was incredible angel studios incredible graphics um and i happen to have on a uh, I shouldn't say this really, but I happen to have on nine floppy disks a copy of Autodesk 3D Studio version two. I said, "Well, we could have a look at this and see what it what it could do." So we the the PCs arrived a few days later. We got it running, and uh, yeah, so none of us had ever used 3D software before, apart from Fergus had used Cinema 4D, I think. And uh, yeah, a week later, we're all making uh, 3D versions of the the graphics that are in the the movie. And you know, it's again another baptism of fire, but yeah, a lot of hard work, a year of maybe 18 months of, of like long hours, and, and we've managed to do it. And for uh, the record, you did buy legitimate licenses further absolutely. down the line. Yeah, <laughs> we, we did. Um, no, that, that is absolutely true. Um, in fact, uh, we used Autodesk software right through to the end of uh, Cyber War, which was the sequel to Lawnmower Man. Um, the graphics were a lot better. The resolution was better because... CD-ROM drives became better, didn't they? You went from a single speed right through to double speed and, and more. Mm. And I think we relied, I think we could, we set the bar for Cyber War at a double speed CD-ROM, but that, that meant um, much improved graphics. 
Um, and Cyber War, I believe, did recycle some of the content from the first game as well, did it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, there was a sequence called Cyber Boogie, which is where you're kind of flying in a in a thing down tunnels. So we, we effectively uh, uh, improved the texture maps, re-rendered it all, and, and, and kind of reused that game. At the time, 3D Studio was uh, pretty basic, but it was the most powerful. But it had no... Um, I'm going to get technical, but hey, just shout if you don't understand. It had no inverse kinematics. Inverse kinematics is where you can, um, you can, you can. How can I say? You can have an articulate. Ah, look, I've got a. No, I can't use it. It's not big enough. You can have an articulated joint, and you can you can move this part like this, yeah. and this joint here it stays where it is. Now, so later on in computer graphics, you could plant your character's feet, grab his head. And move him around, and the feet would stay on the floor, and uh, it was it was it was great. It enabled you to do proper animation. Back in those days, we didn't have that. If you moved if you moved something higher up the hierarchy in space, everything below it would move. So you you effectively couldn't plant a character's feet on the floor. And if you tried to do a walk cycle, you'll see in the game that the characters all kind of float and bob around. And I had a whole game where I had to have. Uh, the Dr. Angelo jumping from platform to platform. So you'll see if you, if you find any footage online and there are playthroughs, I just thought, how can I solve this? How can I solve this? So I did two things. I made the, I made the platforms float. So right. after I animated him, however his feet were moving, I would move the platform <laughs> uh, to match his feet. And then when that didn't work, I just moved the camera down below the platforms. They were floating in space. So you're looking at it all from underneath. So you can't see uh, his feet anyway. So I learned all these tricks for for that. But um, it's it was in cyberspace, you know. Yeah, it's in cyberspace, so it didn't matter. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, those games were I I I hate to say it, but they were amongst the the worst games available. However, there weren't many available. I don't know if you remember at the time, CD-ROM games for PC. You had Lawnmower Man, Microcosm. There was a Night Trap. Do you remember Night Trap? I remember Night Trap on the Sega CD. Yeah, right. there was so, um, Return to Zork, maybe around about then, and Mist yeah. was the big one, wasn't it? Mist. And Mist. So yeah. So in terms of like a CD-ROM game that's more than just a picture book adventure game. Yeah. It, it, really, ours and Microcosm were the only ones. I think it was Microcosm were the only ones available. Um, so it didn't really matter how bad it was. Millions of Americans bought this game enough that that. Uh, by the time we finished Cyber War, Jane invested in uh, half a dozen silicon graphics computers for us to continue rendering rendering graphics for video games. I mean, yeah, and the first game obviously did well enough to you know warrant a, a sequel in Cyber yeah. War. Um, and just regardless of the games, it sounds like you came out of it with a new skill set in three D oh, graphics. Well, absolutely. In fact. Uh, we were talking about this just the other day. Um, so, so Jane invested in silicon graphics, which was a bit of a, it's a bit of a marketing thing, really. It's just that one of those things at the time, if you were a studio and you could say we use SGIs, you know, you kind of were elevated. And this was all because of Rare, wasn't it? Um, and the N sixty four, which, which when the N sixty four launched, had a link with silicon graphics. I think the actual console's hardware. Yeah, that was done by SGI, and also the uh, one of the dev machines was um, an indie with a, a dev kit card in it to develop games for the exactly. Before, and yeah. there was lots of press around this and how the 
all the graphics for Donkey Kong Country were rendered on SGI machines. So SCI, our company, kind of got on that bandwagon and um, invested in these machines. Absolutely insane amounts of money. So we'd all learned how to use 3D for the first two games, which was great. Now we're all learning how to use silicon graphics machines. And uh, whilst some of us stayed on at SCI to work on games, a handful of the artists there basically had been given the keys to the kingdom because they went off and just got jobs. Uh, a, a guy I worked with called Steve went to ILM and mm -hmm. animated uh, uh, Jar Jar Binks's uh, leader in, in the first Star Wars film. Um, Paul, Sh Paul Charisse I met later, he, he went off to work at Weta. I mean, it, pretty much the, you could go where you wanted, which was great. But I, just, I, I didn't like the idea. I wanted to settle down. I didn't want to be moving off to London or LA. So I stayed at SCI and we worked on um, at least three, three more games there. Um, well, there's a game that comes up next on my list, which is called Kingdom of Magic from the <laughs> mind of Fergus McNeil. And that does include a lot of, well, pre-rendered 3D and animated 3D, including a giant toilet flying through outer space with no mm. real explanation as to why that's in there, but it's, it's no. there. No. And it's got that pre-rendered 3D look a la Mist or Return to Zork. Um, what was your involvement in this game? Were you yeah, involved in this one? I was, I was, yeah, I did work on that game. I'm in the credits. Quite a lot of SCI Studio worked on that game. Um, yeah, from the mind of Fergus McNeil, for sure. Another kind of parody kind of Lord of the Rings meets Zork meets I don't know what. Uh, point and click adventure. We rendered all the characters as 3D and then rendered out the sprites and scaled them down. Um, all the backgrounds were generated in 3D. So the characters were done on the SGI machines. The backgrounds were done in 3D Studio Max still. Um, there were a lot of artists working on it because there was a lot of content. Um, it's... You know, it's an acquired taste, that game. There are people online that, that think very highly of it. Uh, yeah, that one certainly on... does have a bit of a cult following for yeah. some people. Um, depends um, if you like the humour or not, really. Exactly. <laughs> if you like the humour, then then you're going to be interested. Uh, you know, it's, it's not my cup of tea, but um, again, uh, a, quite an achievement from Fergus, to be honest, and, and the co-writer. Um, yeah, so I worked on that game. I did character animations. I did all, any... Any 2D illustration that was needed, I did. So there was quite a lot of that in the game. Um, and uh, and it, it wasn't, um, I mean, it wasn't too linear. There were sort of three stems, three quests that you could do through that game. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, I didn't, I, I never got to really play it. We had a big test department. You had to play that. And testing that game was an absolute nightmare because you had three quests that you could choose between. But also, and this is the, the key, the the characters in the game were effectively free roaming artificial intelligent characters. Um, you'd often walk into a location and find two characters from elsewhere in the game had met and were fighting, or had <laughs> met and were having a discussion. But this resulted in the game becoming incredibly difficult to test and complete because often you'd need to find a character to get something you wouldn't know where he was he wouldn't be at the inn where he where he hangs out he'd be off at the waterfall so yeah it was technically it was it was again it was quite high it aimed quite high um mm -hmm. we didn't really have the resources to to get there but it's got it's not without its its charms it had a, quite an interesting intro movie that was rendered by a good colleague of mine a, 
a good friend, Bob Bob Plested, who's uh, incredible. Um, it's got he some was love... responsible for the toilet, was he? Uh, yeah, I'm not <laughs> sure about the toilet. I think that might have actually been made by Fergus himself and added in. Um, it's got some lovely 2D art on the interface, actually. That's what I always love about this game, the, the mm. UI. So when, you, when you're playing the game, you right-click, I think, to pop up a... a a menu that allows you to select your actions. And that was all drawn by a, an old uh, old 16-bit artist called Neil, who, who are really talented. So some elements of the game really stand out. Others are, are not so great. We had a kind of a big meeting uh, held in, in the New Forest where a few of us threw ideas out. And um, I had been talking to a programmer who joined SCI called James Sharman, who is... Uh, an un- unbelievable uh, talent. And he had a, a demo of a 3D engine that he'd written when he was at university. And I proposed at this offsite meeting that we could reversion that engine and create a sequel to one of SCI, or in those days, I think they were called Storm. Storm's like most successful games, which was itself a sequel to Sw- uh, Silkworm. So I think there was a shoot 'em up called Silkworm that that they had, that Storm had done a conversion for. They then wanted to do a sequel itself, but couldn't get the rights. So they renamed it Swiv, which actually, which actually is Silkworm 4. I think that's right. where the name comes from. Silkworm 4. And they, they changed it. Um, so, so Swiv was uh, a, a great shoot em up. Um, and I said, we could do like a 3D version of Swiv with helicopter and a, and a buggy. And yeah, and, and so I'm, I proposed that. And uh, yeah, uh, they agreed to make it and a little team was put together and I started work on that. Excellent. So yeah, Silkworm was 1988. That was the arcade, which was side-scrolling with a Jeep and a helicopter. Swiv was mm. 91, with, which was effectively the same premise, but top down. And then right. Swiv 3D came out in 1996. So we're into the mid nineties now. Yeah. Um, and that had both the helicopter and the Jeep in as well. Did it Swiv 3D with the chase yeah. camera behind it? It did, yeah. Yeah. Um, it was using a kind of voxel engine, although it wasn't voxels. It was some proprietary technique that James had pioneered. Um, okay. uh, so it was a bit like magic carpet in, in that the, the terrain was a sort of undulating hills. And, and then there were, I think magic carpet might have had sprites over the top. Ours were 3D models. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got a really nice little workflow together. There were two artists a programmer who was later joined by another programmer and then another two people, maybe a tester and a level designer. Okay. And there's an um, image on your blog, which I'll pop up on the screen now, which shows it looks like a 3d modeling package with textures being laid onto to 3d models. Yeah. Do you know the image I'm talking about? I do. Yeah. Can I you know just that one. tell us what, what we're looking at there? Yeah. Is... So that is a copy of, well, I'm using a, a Silicon graphics Indigo two and I'm running Three Design, which was a which was a piece of software, a modeling software that was bought by Wavefront very early on. So at this point, Alias Wavefront hadn't joined forces and started creating Maya or Power Animator, which I think they still make now. Maya. Um, so we were using uh, Wavefront's original software, and this this tool, Three Design, was really quirky, but. I worked out a way of, of generating 3D models, very low poly. Um, and then I would also open up Photoshop version two. I don't know how I got hold of that for Cylind graphics, but I did. Um, and I, just through trial and error and 
working things out, discovered that I could UV map texture maps onto a model. Now, UV mapping was is commonplace. Everyone does it. It's how you get textures onto a model. But at this time, 3D Studio didn't have any way of doing it. You could project a map onto a model. You could basically, you know, you could take a bottle and you could um, you could either wrap a texture around it that way, or you could push a texture through a model that way, or or in another direction. But what you really want is to to wrap a, a texture around there, but then also have another texture on there and a different one on the lid. Mm-hmm. But we couldn't afford to have three or four textures per model. So what I did was I combined all the textures for uh, the model into one 64 by 64 image. And then I would UV map it by getting sections of the 3D model onto that texture map and pulling the vertices around. And I had a little workflow where you could edit in Photoshop, save, and that's why they're all open together. And and it was, yeah, it was great. And uh, I later discovered that I was kind of, it was quite a pioneering technique, but um, it enabled us to build all the little models for, for Swiv. And that's how we managed, again, through, through, through today's eyes, the game looks quite rudimentary. But at the time, having, you know, a, uh, a dozen or more 3D models, a, a textured landscape, plus all the sprites for the bullets on screen, and the game still run at, I think, 30 FPS was quite an achievement um yeah i remember it being an impressive game you know it was certainly a cutting edge game when it came out at the time and um you're not constrained by any limitations of of um in terms of storyline of an arcade because there was no arcade for this game so you had free reign to really come up with what you wanted and i can see you even storyboarded the game uh you put a copy of that um i think my favorite caption on the storyboard is uh, a caption which reads an enormous red planet with a crappy little rock turd for a moon <laughs> um, <laughs> who, who would have been referring to this document or was this just for your own creativity <laughs> yeah so uh I created those storyboards for the animated sequences that that enabled you to transition from kind of uh, environment to environment, um, and I uh, yeah they were really just for mine and Peter's benefit. Peter was the other artist because between us we we rendered all those sequences and and built all the graphics for the game. So yeah, they were just uh, they were just there to 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 enable us to build the right models and render the right sequences. And then I would do all the editing in um, in, a, in a tool called Composer on the SGI, which is a little like Premiere is now, but, um, well, it's more like, I don't know. It's It was weird. It was kind of a modular video editor. It's very, very good tool. Um, yeah, so I did all the editing in that. So, yeah, we didn't, um, didn't quite get as far as we wanted with those animated sequences. Um, I wanted some characters in there. I wanted some aliens to appear and and like you know kind of be menacing. Um, they uh, they were kind of inspired a bit by Predator, I think, um, and also Babylon Five. I, no, maybe Babylon Five hadn't come out yet. There was so the story of the face on on Mars as well, well which you incorporated into it. Didn't that you? is, yeah. So I was really big into um, the fourteen times at that around that time. Um, my my friend and I, Ian uh, and I, were just big into conspiracy theories and whether aliens existed. And then that face on Mars appeared one day. It was a, it was a image of, of Mars that had been taken by one of the, the satellites or flybys. And there was a kind of a few pixels that looked a bit like a Egyptian sort of face type structure. Um, so yeah, I rolled that into the into the story, and that is the main objective at the end of 
the UK version of the game, yeah. Excellent. And we come on now um, to our next game studio. So you move on from SCI around about 1998 to a yeah. company called IO Productions. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. What prompted yeah. that move? So um, we released Swiver SCI. Um, it went it went pretty well. It was good. Um, but the studio had grown quite a lot and XS hadn't done very well. Complete failure, really. And they needed to cut back, and we we could see this coming. We could see that the um, that the studio was going to trim back. John was effectively technical director of the studio at this point, and he he asked a few of us whether we we wanted to kind of think about going going it on our own. So we had a, a game idea that we'd we were working on, we we're thinking about, but it wasn't a, an SCI property. We, it was something that uh, one of the guys had just sort of thought of and it was the idea of doing a, a sheep herding game um, um you say that we so like, casually a sheep herding game yeah like yeah, a I'm... proper sheep herding game <laughs> uh, one man and his dog uh andy's girlfriend i think at the time had suggested it and we were like yeah it would be good it would be good so we kind of set up a little company a shell company a kind of we did all the paperwork called it io productions there was another io a couple of other studios called io later I think uh yeah, I can't remember what game they developed. Wasn't the original Hitman IO? Hmm, maybe not. Anyway, um, ours was IO Productions. And uh, yeah, sure sure enough, one day we, we get to work and uh, and the doors are locked and uh, we were all asked to leave. And yeah, they unceremoniously had, had closed our studio down. So um, we, went, we went straight into an office in Eastleigh, just outside Southampton. There were probably four or five of us at the start. And we started our journey to try and get our, our game published. We had nothing but a VHS video of some fake game footage that we'd rendered in 3D Studio of a, of a little farmer chasing some sheep. And, uh, yeah, we had our, I think we had about maybe three, maybe six months money that we could we could live off from our redundancy. So John and I just sort of did what we could. John did uh, an incredible job, found an agent, chased around, tried, did a hundred different meetings. And eventually, uh, Infograms in, in France said, yes, they wanted to publish it. They wanted us to develop it. They wanted it on uh, Dreamcast. No, yes, Dreamcast was about to launch. Mm -hmm. They wanted it on Dreamcast and PC, and uh, we were full steam ahead. And, uh, yeah, started So well. there you, go. you got your new company set up. You, uh, you've created this game, which was called or you're creating a game which was called Stampede. Yeah. Um, yeah, IO Productions, not to be confused with IO Interactive. That's who go, did yeah. Hitman and that series. Um, so, you know, we know from the intro to this video that this game was not released. Just talk us through the, the saga. How far did you get with Stampede? Did it get close? We to got release? a long way. Um, yeah. yeah, here is uh, here is the, I don't know if it's got a date on it. 2000, this says 2000, 1998 to 2000. This is the last iteration of the design document. So this has all of the... A lot of detail in there. Yeah, a chunky, has, for those on audio, that's a chunky document with a, a farmer and his sheepdog on the front cover there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the that's, um, that's farm. For some reason, he was called Farmer Blow, and we don't know why. <laughs> and the dog, of course, is called Shep. Yes. Um, and, uh, yeah, it it's a long story. Um 
And, We've got time, yeah. Glenn. We've got okay, time. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, so we. How can I? How can I say it? I mean, yes, it didn't get finished. We developed it for over a, over a year of full proper development with Infograms. Um, they spent a lot of money on it, um, and uh, they decided in the end that it just didn't fit in with with their their publishing strategy. What what they would do is every few months they'd reorganize the publisher. They'd they'd come up with a new way of selling games. They'd say, "Ah, oh, we're not going to be Infograms anymore. We're going to have." Infogram sports and infograms action and and what happened was they couldn't fit our game into one of their <laughs> predefined publishing arms is sheep herd in a, sh- a sport yeah. or an action game yeah, yeah. but um no it, it it what while we were developing it, it was it was absolutely brilliant there were um uh very early on we we spotted a guy who had developed a sheep herding game called come bar Right. Uh, which is a pun on come by. Yeah. And it was on the Net Yerose. I think that's how you pronounce it. Yeah, yeah? the PlayStation sure. 1 homebrew yeah. development kit. Yeah, yeah, which was an incredible thing I think that Sony did and was the last the last chance really for bedroom coding, wasn't it? That was mm-hmm. that was it. Um and uh yeah, the Net Yerose and uh Nick Nick Slaben had developed this demo. He was still working at the MOD at the time on weapon systems or something but we we basically called him and he jumped at the chance and he came to work for us and was kind of in charge of the dreamcast version um had a few other guys uh, join us nick uh was in charge of the pc version i think andy was one of the founders working hard on the pc version it was his effectively his idea um and uh yeah we took on uh, at least three artists so i i was I was a designer effectively, but I did a lot of 3D modeling. Um, and uh, Paul and and Steve and Cam did a lot. Most of the the, the game was done by them. Um, so just tell us about the gameplay itself. So it got yeah. to a point where you could sit down and play this game a little bit, did it? Yeah, I was I was hoping to get a video to you, but we uh, I saw it playing uh, on, earlier this week. Um, you you controlled initially the farmer and he'd have his dog next to him and you could run around and the dog would follow you kind of at heel and there'd be sheep everywhere and you'd have to get the sheep to the goal and the sheep were pretty unresponsive to the farmer the farmer could get quite close to the sheep and they'd just ignore him so what you'd have to do is switch control to the dog and the sheep were pretty scared of the dog and not only that you could you could bark and that would scare them even more and uh what you had to do was position the farmer and then use the dog to kind of edge the sheep towards the gate or whatever he was going towards and eventually into the the pen at the end. Um, And you'd have to keep flicking between characters because the farmer would have to do things like open gates or stand in a road to stop a tractor that's coming down the road. Um, So, or later on flick levers and open drawbridges and things. Um, So so that was how it started off. It's got progressively more complex and yeah, it did. Them, yeah. And what happened was we we discovered that, well, the kind of the game revealed itself that um, Farmer Blow was a sheep herding farmer for hire. He's a kind of renegade sheep herding <laughs> farmer. He um, kind of like the eighteen. He could be called anywhere to solve your herding issues. And uh, it just so happened that there was uh, a global disaster 
and uh, animals were being somehow relocated. And uh, no one knows why, but there are penguins running around the pyramids. Or <laughs> there are, uh, And this is all detailed in the design document. And so his job was to fly out at the drop of a hat and herd up the animals that were in the wrong place, like the elephants in the Arctic or, or whatever. And um, yeah, each new environment would bring it, bring new challenges and and new problems to deal with. So um, I really like the sound of it. It sounds like one of those really simple game premises, like say Lemmings, for example, where you can immediately understand what the goal is: get the sheep in the pen, and yeah. um, you know, probably start off with some simple mechanics that get progressively more complex through the game, like holding up the traffic or pulling exactly. levers. Yeah, um, and we, like we ended up with large uh, kind of ski slopes that once you'd herded the animals to the edge, they'd they'd run onto the slope and then they'd all slide down and jump off the end and it became a kind of game of can you can you get them to land in the right spot? Um, it was it was technically technically the engine was great uh again uh dreamcast so we're now into the world of of direct 3d and you know uh, accelerated graphics but still you're having to kind of create your own 3d engine there was still no middleware there was no unreal engine or anything so um uh, james the guy that had written the the landscape engine for swift came on board and he wrote a pretty incredible landscape engine for this that did baked in shadows and uh, some incredible um, texturing. Um, it had beautiful art. Oh, I'm going to say this. I'm blowing my own trumpet a little bit, but it had a, it had a beautiful feel and it had beautiful environments and the sky was, was reflected in the sea beautifully. And uh, there's quite a lot of screenshots of this, I think, on my blog that you can see. Um, and there's actually an interesting story about those sky domes because I was playing at the time Spyro the Dragon on my mm-hmm. PlayStation. And the PlayStation is is pretty awful at texturing, isn't it? You know, there's oh, no yeah. filtering on those textures. and all sorts, yeah. Yeah. But the sky domes in Spyro were incredible. They were glorious. And was it Naughty Dog that developed Spyro? I think it was. Mm-hmm. Same guys that developed um, Crash Bandicoot. I might be wrong. Whoever it was, I looked them up. And uh, I just sent an unsolicited email. I, I sent an email to the head of the art department at this developer. And the email said, I absolutely love your game. The sky domes are just gorgeous. Uh, I'm developing a game. We're developing a game currently. And I'd love to know how you did it. How did you make them look so good? And uh, he sent me back an email that explained how he did it. Uh, so I used the technique and uh, it, it, it worked. The technique is that there's no texture map on the sky at all. The, the sky dome is built entirely out of vertices and you color the vertices and then you use Gourad shading to blend the colors of the vertices. So, oh, I see. So the sky dome has a sun on it in circles, in, in a circle of pixels, as a circle, circle of vertices that are all colored bright yellow. And then, and then yeah, you get these gorgeous glows and, and gradients. Uh, yeah. So it was, it was a, Technically, it was a very, very advanced game. Uh, it was turning out, it, it was heading towards being quite good fun. But unfortunately, we were just pulled from pillar to post by infograms and they kept wanting to change it. And eventually the game kind of transformed into almost just a race game. It almost transformed into you using the dog as a steering wheel and the herd would just barge through the level and it became like a checkpoint game. Um, it was still pretty good, but. Um, yeah, unfortunately, uh, the time came and and yeah, it didn't um, it didn't get made, didn't get published. 
I've just had a quick look. It was Insomniac Games that created Insom- Spyro, but they had a very close relationship with Naughty Dog. Yeah. There we go. I think that, yeah, yeah I think Insomniac became Naughty Dog later. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So the game um, wasn't published because Infograms couldn't find a, a box to put this game in and say, well, that's that type of game and we can publish it. But you do realize there's going to be a huge amount of interest in this because it is an unreleased Dreamcast game that is in part playable and. <laughs> yeah people love that kind of thing so what exists of it today is it just a single disc out there somewhere is it shared anywhere it's i it hasn't been shared i don't think um i've done a couple of interviews with dreamcast journalists in the past uh talking about it um we've got we've got a build on the game on the dreamcast that works and we've got a build on the pc that i know works in a slightly more advanced state than the dreamcast build um and yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to release a, a I think they were called GD ROMs, weren't they, for the Dreamcast? Mm-hmm. It'd be interesting to release one. Um, but unfortunately, no one knows who owns the copyright to this. Uh, Infograms paid us a lot of money, so we don't own it. Um, Infograms no longer exists. They're probably Atari uh, yeah. now. So whoever Atari is probably owns the rights to this so yeah there's a document somewhere isn't there with a signature on that could get you in a lot of trouble yeah exactly and and, you know it's just not worth risking it so yeah unfortunately um yeah i don't i don't think it's ever going to be released well hopefully you'll be able to share some footage with us sometime in the near future and you do have a youtube channel that you pop some things onto don't you sometimes is it just called glenn broadway on youtube yeah yeah, it's just me glenn broadway and uh, yeah so yeah. I'll put a link to that and um, maybe uh, if people want to go and subscribe, they might be lucky enough to see some footage at some point in the near future. And there's also footage of um, other games that you've worked on and, and things like that on the channel. So well worth a yeah. look. Yeah. Um, so after IO Productions, you were in part an owner of this company, were you? IO Productions, a co-founder. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So did, did the whole company get wound down after um, Stampede or we- did you... Move on to other things. We did a few other bits and pieces. We developed uh, another Dreamcast game called uh, Giant Killers in conjunction okay. with Smoking Gun. Um, that was released. Um, quite Again, quite a rare Dreamcast game, actually, because it's one of the only Dreamcast games that was released PAL only. So oh, okay. when you find when you see online the, the Dreamcast completists, often this is one of the games that they, uh, that they struggle to get hold of. Um, so we did that. But before we'd got to the stage of winding the company down, we'd done a few other things. We had uh, we we'd done promo videos for a game called Smashbots, which was effectively Robot Wars. We'd built two promo videos, and we we were very close to signing a deal with the BBC to actually make an official Robot Wars game. Um, we started work on a game called Mercuranium, which was a liquid physics game that I'd okay. come up with where you you hovered, you, you had a little guy in a hover suit and he had magnetic boots and somehow the, the mercury had been magnetized and he had to, it's a, a bit like herding in a way, he'd have to <laughs> he'd have to fly around and push the mercury around the level and get it back. Um, there's, a, there's many reasons why we didn't publish that and, and or make it, but amazingly, if just a few years later, um, Archie McLean made mercury for the, PSP that was almost identical to to this game with without the third person it was a kind of first person game effectively you were directing the you were controlling the mercury directly mm. but effectively the same game so it was it was great to see that there was you know some 
value in that idea and that yeah. it could be realized even if it wasn't by me it was by someone else so you know it's great so um, we're com- coming into the new millennium here i mean giant yeah. killers which was the football management sim that came out in 2001 right so um we're coming so, so, we're coming to the to the boundaries of retro here which i know so, the channel likes to listen to yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so before before giant killers had been completed our agent who had originally helped us get the deal with infograms came to us and said Right, we, I'm doing the rounds because I need to find someone who can help me. Um, I've got this company, they're called Nokia, and they think they are going to be able to put the internet on a mobile phone. So this was 1999 at the point, I think. They think they can put the internet on mobile phones. And, and we were like, well, I don't think so, because mobile phones only have <laughs> tiny black and white screens, 96 pixels by 48 pixels. No, no, no. Believe me, they, they, they really, they've got some money. They want to develop some content. So we, we were like, we got involved, but we were a bit reticent. In fact, we set up a new company because we didn't want to potentially sully our name as a Dreamcast developer by making games for devices with 96 by 48 pixel screens. Um, so we set up IOMO and we started developing content for Nokia. Uh, it, was, it was called WAP content. WAP was the wireless access protocol, which is kind of like HTTP for mobile phones. It was incredibly trimmed down. Um, But we created like effectively tiny interactive websites that were games. Um, Nick worked out a way of playing animations by, by quickly loading and flicking between several WAP pages so he could play animations. And in fact, one of our earliest games was a a 3D golf game that ran in WAP, so you would you would see a, a 3D view of the of the of the golf course, and you'd pick an aim by saying, "Well, I'm going to go aim number three, which is slightly to the left, and I'm going to my power is going to be ten, and you you hit the button, and then it, it would send off the call to the server, and then it would send you back a rendering of where the ball landed, <laughs> and in between you'd see a little animation of a golf ball." Um, we genuinely thought not, not much would come of this. Uh, we thought there was not really much f- future in the internet being on mobile phones. Um, and then the Matrix came out, didn't it, with the phone, get yeah. me out of here, Neo. And yeah. that, was, that was the phone that had WAP on it. That was the first one. And, uh, well, I mean, within, uh, I don't know, within six months, we'd, we'd stopped developing all other content and all we were doing was mobile phone content. Yeah, it was. Yeah, and that you've got a a huge list of games that you've produced on mobile phones, um, including some well recognised uh, names like Tomb Raider mobile games in two thousand three, two thousand four. Yeah, um, it's a huge list, and and it it just testament to to the amount of success you must have had moving into the mobile industry. Yeah, as I say, it, it drags us away from the retro now and 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 more up to the modern day. But well. The, it does, the... but interestingly, for us, what it was like was it was like retro gaming. It was it was going back to our early days of developing. I didn't I didn't develop any Spectrum games, but but John certainly did, and and then eight bit games, sixteen um, bit games. It was very much like that, and so we 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 all drew on our old experiences, um, and it was. It's no, it's no surprise that basically all the mobile games in the early days were developed in the UK. And it's because we had that industry. We had that 
kind of workforce who had done it in 1982, 83. And, and you can trace it back. I, I often, I often um, think about this, and I'm always astounded. Almost every big UK developer is owned by usually brothers for some reason, um, and they're all born in 1970, 1971. And the reason is that when they were 10 or 11 and just starting secondary school, the BBC decided we're going to put a computer in every secondary school. So you can just see it. You can, you can see the moment that the industry was created and it's still, and it's still to this day, you know, rebellion is, is run by, you know, by two brothers who were at school who were 11 when they were, when the BBC appeared. And that's why. So, so in a way for us, it was kind of retro gaming. Um, But it's, it was like the, the entirety of the, of the video games industry up to that point was then repeated and crammed into two years. So we went from, from tiny WAP games right through to pretty elaborate color mobile games. And certainly by about 2004, we were at the peak of what could be created. And then just a few years later, obviously the iPhone launched launched and uh, changed everything. But and everything that came with that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then just one one final twist in your career. If we just jump to twenty fifteen, is it? I think you became a computer science teacher. Is that right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I mean, so I... in doing that, when you're stood in front of a room of uh, students, did your video game credentials serve to score you some uh, kudos with the students? I mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, <laughs> uh, I I would say that since since um, starting teaching that I probably get asked once a week by someone, did I invent Snake? <laughs> I get that question more often than, than not. Um, we didn't invent Snake, although we did develop Snake for Nokia. We developed every version of Snake after, after the original. We did Snake 2 and then Snake 2 EX, and then eventually a game called Snakes on the Engage, which was uh, like the fully 3D version of Snakes. Uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the... That that kind of it it definitely was was useful to be able to talk to the kids about how how I got into video games and how I you know I managed to find myself a career that that literally every day was the most enjoyable thing you could ever do. Uh, I I can't remember a day where I went to work and and I you know I wasn't having fun, um, and that's just. That kind of thing is inspiring for kids. So, uh, yeah, we we had a great time. I, I taught in a secondary school, and and also I taught lower down in the same school for uh, five years. Um, I only ever planned to do it for a, for about a year, but uh, yeah, I just couldn't leave. It was it was great fun. And did um, you ever meet that kid who, like you, turned up with their plotted world map that they made on the BBC Micro, and you said? You never made that. That wasn't you. Did that ever happen? Well, I had a few students who who uh, did some incredible things, um, and uh, yeah, but I never doubted them because they were pretty clever kids. I do remember once doing a lesson about binary searches, uh, which is a, a quick way of of finding data in a large list, and I set the table out with. Um, I think I was using poker chips and playing cards to represent the data. And I was, I was, I was going to explain to the kids how a binary search enables you to find an item in a list of maybe 10,000 items 
in no more than six jumps. And, you know, you can get to the item you want as long as they're sorted. But before I'd laid it out and before I'd even described how to do it, a, a girl in the class, kind of apropos of nothing, basically de described a binary search um, to the rest of the, the class. And I was kind of gobsmacked. And I said to her, have you, have you been reading about binary searches? And she looked at me and was like, no, I just... I just presumed that that would be the quickest way to do it. And I was like, okay, I'm going to make a note of her name and look out for her in the future because she, you know, it was incredible to see the moment that a, that a student, I mean, she must have been 12 years old, discovered something that, that you know, you'd normally learn at, at university. So the, it's great that we're, we're teaching computer science again at school level. It's, yeah. it's brilliant. And hopefully it will mean that, uh, you know, we get back a little bit to what we had in the, you know, before before the turn of the century. Uh, uh, we we people never believe me when I tell them that GTA was developed in Scotland. They always think that GTA is an American game and that all video games are developed in America. And you know, you have to explain that most video games are developed in the UK. Well, they certainly were up to you know yeah. the turn of the yeah. century and. Uh, it was yeah. a bunch of guys who went to a computer club uh, in a in a village hall in or a hall in Dundee and just did it for fun and out yeah. of that came Lemmings and GTA and all of those things. Yeah, well, yeah. hopefully, you know, um, people like you inspiring the next generation uh, when you were a computer science teacher can re-stimulate that because there are the tools available now. Oh. Um, we've come back around to tools being a bit more accessible for you know current technology. Um, so hopefully we'll see that. Um, I'll just yeah. ask you one last question before we wrap this up, which is if you look back on your career in the video games industry, what's a highlight for you? Perhaps a game that you can pick out oh, as being the one that's highlights. closest to your heart. There's so Honestly, there's so many highlights. Um, I actually made a few notes before I spoke to you because there were some things that I just thought I've got to, I've got to tell <laughs> me all this. I, I, okay. So um, I've definitely met a few people that, that were heroes, you know, Mark sure. Cerny, um, Alexei Pajitnov. I, I was at GDC one year and I sat down for lunch and sat down opposite me. He just sat down and looked at me and said, oh, hi, do you mind if I sit here? And it's, I'm like, <laughs> no, yeah. and, you know, there was no mention of Tetris, no mention of anything. We just had a pleasant chat about the surroundings and where we were staying. And, you know, I've got that experience of my, one of my absolute heroes. Um, Probably the one real highlight, this is a this was one of those moments that you just never forget. I was at a game developer conference in San Jose. I was chairing a roundtable discussion about mobile games. So this would have been 2001-ish, I think. My session was called Will Retro Arcade Classics Kill Mobile Gaming? That was how you had to frame a, a roundtable discussion. Right. You'd come up with a question, a, a contentious question, and then the room of maybe 30 people would discuss it. And we were talking, because at the time, the only games that were being made for Java Java phones were like Breakout and, you know, just real old classics, Pac-Man, Pong, uh, Space Invaders. So we had the discussion and someone at the end said, yes, but, um, but I, I can't remember how we got to it. Something about uh, games on phones or games on consoles are different to arcade games. Arcade games have to um, attract their users in different ways to P 
PC uh, uh, to video games on computers. Mm-hmm. And I and I ended up kind of rolling into a story about Defender. And I said, well, there's that interesting story, isn't there, about Defender, where apparently they'd finished the game and they were about to present it. And someone said, the game doesn't do anything when no one's playing it. And uh, Eugene Jarvis said, well, we should do like a, an attract mode where we, we have the game playing on its own when no one's there to, to get people to... And apparently he was up all night wiring in. There was no coding as such, just kind of wiring <laughs> chips together. And, and, he, and he had never even really tested this. And uh, they turned up at the, the presentation and he, and he kind of crossed his fingers and turned the machine on and the attract mode worked. And uh, it, was a, it was an 11th hour um, sort of reprieve. And uh, and at that point, a guy at the back of the room said, "Well, I said, I said, I don't, I don't know if that story is true or not, but it just shows you that the attract modes are important." And a guy at the back of the room said, "Well, uh, maybe we should ask Eugene and see if it is true or not." <laughs> <laughs> and he turned around, and sort of behind him was Eugene Jarvis, and I'm like, "Oh." Uh, I just made an absolute fool of myself. <laughs> and I looked at him and Eugene Jarvis looked at me and he went, no, that's pretty much how it went. <laughs> so, oh, nice. so I I got to meet Eugene Jarvis, who truly, I think, is one of the most important people in, in video game history. And uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was a, a real highlight. But to be honest, um, the highlight is, is when you, when you make something and you, for the first time, you, you grab that joystick or you get the mouse or whatever you're using and you, you make it move on that screen. It takes me back to that first ever video game I played, which would have been probably Astro Wars, the little grandstand one, or maybe a bit before on a, on a BBC that first time. And it, you realize that you've, you've created, effectively, you've, you've, create, you've brought something to life and and you can control it and uh i think that yeah seeing seeing a game published that you know you've you've created from nothing is is an incredible um experience so yeah I, i've loved every minute of it absolutely what a, what a lovely note to end on glenn thank you so much for your time today for your contribution to the games industry and for all of your insights that you've given us today we really do appreciate it and thank you sir well, I just want to say thank you for everything you've done for the games industry. <laughs> and and the cave is one of the most magical places that I've ever been to. And I absolutely implore anyone to book a visit because it will be the best, most nostalgic three hours of your life. So, yeah. That's very generous. Thank you. And I didn't tell him to say that. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, Glenn. Take care. Thanks a lot, Neil. Thank you. <laughs>